Thank you, Sarah and Doug. Turn to John chapter 10 this morning. This will be our last sermon in our series on the first half of John. We'll be taking a break from it for a while. And then next week, we'll be getting a series on communing with the Lord through prayer and learning to pray as Jesus has taught us to pray. This passage continues in John the discussion about the nature of being a sheep of Jesus and what it means that he is the good shepherd. So follow along with me as I read from John chapter 10, beginning at verse 22. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do with my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing on his word. Father, we ask that you would indeed speak to us through your word, that we would listen to it, that we would experience you, and that we would follow you. Would you do this? Because Jesus is the good shepherd. In your name we pray, amen. Hopefully you know by now, as we've been going through John, that whenever the text indicates something about the setting, such as a festival or a feast going on, it is setting the stage for what is about to follow. This text begins by stating that at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. He's walking while he was in the temple of Colony of Solomon. This is one side of the temple. It's because it was winter and because there's cold winds blowing and all teaching moved over to this portion of the temple. But he tells us that he, the text tells us that he does this during the Feast of Dedication. Now, what is the Feast of Dedication? Well, the Feast of Dedication was a festival of lights. And instead of one day of festivity, there were eight. Crazy nights. Yes, the Feast of Dedication is the basis for Hanukkah. And um, what Hanukkah occurred was, a, was celebrating an event that occurred in 167 BC. Now, let me locate ourselves on the biblical timeline real quickly. In 1446 BC was the Exodus. God led the people of Israel out of Egypt and into the Promised Land. They were there, God gave them his promises, and their relationship with the Lord went up and down. In 722, they were exiled. Judgment came across the land, particularly by the Assyrians, and the Assyrians came over and they conquered um, ten-twelfths of Israel. After that, the southern kingdom uh, had an up-and-down relationship with the Lord. They were faithful for a little while longer, but eventually in 586, the Babylonians came through and they conquered the Assyrians. If you're trying to remember this, it's just ABC, okay? It's the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, then Cyrus the Persian, who comes in next, Cyrus with the C, okay? And then, after that, Cyrus the Persian comes through and he um, conquers and he issues an edict. And in 420, 
I'm sorry, in 536, he issues an edict saying that the Jews can return home to rebuild their temple. The actual edict, we have it. It's in museums. You can see it. I myself have seen the edict that Cyrus issued um, that Scripture talks about that restores the Jews to to rebuild their temple. In 420 B.C., we're tracking along, the last book of the Old Testament was written. And after 420 B.C., we enter into what's called the intertestamental period. This is the time from the last book of the Old Testament to the first book of the New Testament that's being written. During that intervening 400 years, there's a variety of other conquerors that come through and conquer Israel. During that time, there's various uh, rebel groups, people who claim to be the Messiah, who would try to overthrow the ruler and often fail. Then, a massive conqueror came through, and his name was, he was a Syrian by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. And Epiphanes came through, and he wanted to unite all of his territory under him, under his rule. And so what he does is he comes through, and he conquers Jerusalem, and he is tired of the revolts, and he is tired of the uprising that occurs. And so what he does is that he insists that everybody worship the pagan gods. Now, everybody around the world knows that Jews have various dietary restrictions. And everybody knows that if there is one food that Jews do not eat, it is pork, right? So Antiochus Epiphanes comes through, and not only does he conquer, but he sets up a statue of Zeus in the Holy of Holies. And in order to dedicate the temple, he comes out in front, and he slaughters a pig, and he sacrifices a pig on the temple in Jerusalem, completely and utterly desecrating it. And then he continued pagan worship for some time. I mean, the ultimate, let me oppress you and let me show you that I'm the winner, right? Well, as time progressed, there were various uprisings, and there was a guy by the name of uh, Judas Maccabeus, who was known as Judas the Hammer, who came up in 167 BC. He led a guerrilla warfare tactic. He recaptured the temple and reconsecrated it, and he did so on the 25th day of Kislev, which is the month that roughly corresponds to December. And on the 25th day of Kislev, they reconsecrated, rededicated the temple, and there was a decree issued that they would have an eight-day festival to celebrate God delivering them. And in particular, that light, this is why it's a festival of light, that light came and appeared to us, quote, at a time when we hardly dared to hope for it. So people viewed Judas Maccabeus, he has subsequently died, they viewed him as a forerunner of the Messiah because he was the only Jewish uh, rebel, the only one who was revolted, who actually overthrew some level of rule and he actually reestablished temple worship, which was still going on at the time of Jesus when he is here. And so there have been these series of pseudo-messiahs. And there was an anticipation that the Messiah or the Christ, if you're using Greek, same word though, would come and he would be the one who would finally overthrow the rule and reestablish the kingdom and the dynasty of Israel. So it is at this point that the Jews come up to Jesus during the Feast of Dedication and they say to him, now how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And in Jesus' answer, what he demonstrates and what he shows us is he gives us this profound instruction on the nature of belief and on the nature of what it is to know and how we know. 
So we're going to look at in Jesus' teaching here is who exactly it is believes, who believes, how they believe, and what those, believe, what those who believe receive. Notice Jesus' response as he instructs who it is exactly who believes. This is Jesus' answer to them. I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Why do they not believe? Because they're not his sheep. Now, such an idea is shocking to our modern sensibilities. I would venture to say that it's shocking, especially to people who are devoted to the hard sciences and have careers in hard sciences. Because what Jesus is saying is that the way that people commonly view things today is they say, well, I believe, I believe in facts. I mean, that's what I believe in. I believe in the facts. I follow the evidence. I'm not dissuaded by emotions. I mean, either something is true or it's not true. Either there is evidence for it or there is not evidence for it. I believe in the facts. And today, you know, there's kind of several dominant approaches to what people say they believe or how they know something. There are those who hold to an alleged scientific approach. There are those who hold to an alleged level of objectivity where they say, I just believe in the facts. And such an assertion is just simply not true at all. Um, if that's a new concept for you, any, any intro to the philosophy of science um, will expose that, let alone the fact within the scientific community, the well-documented problem that is ubiquitous in scientific research of confirmation bias. So one approach is that people say, well, I just believe the facts, and I do so objectively. On the other side, you've got the romantics who say, no, 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 no. I, um, you know, follow your own heart. I, I, you know, what I know, I follow my heart. I know, and that's what I believe because my heart leads me to know what's really true and what's really right. Let me just pause for a quick second and say, I, I, I understand that what we're discussing right now, for some of you who are interested in philosophy and this stuff, what I'm going to say is, is nowhere going to be near enough. And for those of you that, like, despise this type of thing, it's going to be way too much. So, with the full objective of making everybody angry, let us continue. Um, or disappointed. So, instead, so you've got those who say just the facts, and others who say, no, I know what my heart tells me. In contrast to both of those positions, you have Jesus. And what Jesus says is you need to believe in order to know. Proverbs put it this way, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. If you want to develop philosophical thought, that would be continued through Augustine and through Anselm and many other teachers. If you want a secular, secular philosopher of more contemporary times who would affirm this position, that would be Michael Polanyi who would do so. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And what Jesus makes clear is he says, the reason you don't believe is not from a lack of evidence. You've seen many things. You yourself have been an eyewitness to the miracles. And you still don't believe. And repeatedly through the Gospel of John, we have been seen again and again that those, and it has been exposed, that lack of evidence is rarely the issue for unbelief. Yes, a lack of evidence can weaken someone's faith, and there are mounds and mounds of evidence for Christianity. But overwhelming evidence does not produce faith. 
It doesn't happen in the religious realm. It doesn't happen in the, mater- in, in the secular realm. It doesn't happen in any aspect. Belief and knowledge, these two things are intertwined. Here's a practical example of that. Consider going ziplining. I remember one of the first times I went ziplining, there was this woman who was getting ready to go on the zipline, and she had her harness in. She was clipped into the line, but she would not climb the ladder. In this particular zipline, you climbed up from the ground with your, with your clips in. And she would not climb the ladder at all, right? And so she's there, and the, and the instructor's like, no, your harness is going to hold you up. You have to believe that your harness is going to hold you up. And she says, well, I believe my harness is going to hold you up. She's like, well, you have to believe that the ropes are going to hold you up. She's like, I believe that the ropes are going to hold me up. You have to believe that the overhead, that the steel cable is going to hold you up. She's like, I believe that, the whole, that this is all going to hold me up. I'm just not moving, right? Now, did, now, does she know that? I mean, what's going to convince her? Does she know that this harness is going to hold her up? Well, you could give her more facts. Let's examine the tensile strength of these objects, right? Let me show you how this is, what this is going to do. What happens, no, is that she needs to believe it, means she needs to have the head knowledge and she needs to act upon it. Is that she needs to believe in order to know that this harness is really going to hold her up. Right? She needs to believe this truth and then act upon it so that she can actually know that what she says to believe is actually true and actually, actually real. And the process of this is that what happens for each one of us is that there is a knowledge that we need to have, but in acting upon it. There is belief in acting upon that belief. And that's how we know. That's what Jesus says. You don't believe because you're not my sheep. You don't know me because you don't believe in me, and you don't believe in me because you don't know me. These two things, these two things go together. And the amount of evidence doesn't generate belief. Let me connect this to your own spiritual journey. If someone were to say to you, why do you believe in Jesus? Hey, you know, you're in the workplace, and they say, you know what, hey, I, I heard you're a Christian. I know that you're a Christian. Um, why do you believe in Jesus? There's a number of different responses people might give, but I would venture to guess that quite a number of people would say something like this. Well, you know, I, uh, I had doubts about uh, Christianity and whether or not it was true, but, but, but I examined the evidence and I figured it out and I researched it and the, and the evidence was, was credible and so, and so I believed. It's an inadequate answer. And it's an inadequate answer, and I think we give it sometimes because we want to say, you know, we don't want to look stupid. We don't want to say that we believe something without having reason for it, and we want to look smart for our peers, and we want to, you know, we want to look smart to people who are professional problem solvers, and plus the fact, you know, we don't want to be one of those weirdos who says they had some sort of religious experience, and so we say, well, I've got, I've got evidence. I've got evidence, and I've got the evidence, and the evidence makes sense. That's why I believe. Well, the counter-response to that would be, well, well, I've got a bigger amount of evidence over here for this. What about that? Well, I'll find something that makes sense to you. Well, I'll find something that makes sense to me. Now, to be clear, I am pro-thinking, and thinkers need to believe, and I believe that believers need to think. But the response is inadequate, and here is why. Leslie Newbegin, who was a missionary in India, and then he came back to, the, to, Europe, to England, and he saw how much um, how difficult it was to be a missionary to Western context, he writes this. He says, clearly, we must resist the temptation to propose some supposedly more fundamental and more reliable truth 
on the basis of which the story of the gospel could be validated. What he's saying is this, clearly we must resist the temptation to say what's really true, how you really know the truth is by thinking. Like you can think yourself into faith. I've got enough evidence. I can really think about this. He said we must resist the temptation um, be- to pro- we must resist the temptation to propose some supposedly more fundamental and more reliable truth on the basis of which the gospel story could be validated. He's saying you need to resist the temptation to think that mounds of evidence and reason can actually lead you to faith. You need to resist the temptation that what saves you is your head. So he goes on. Certainly, we may try to show how the biblical story makes sense of human life in a way that no other story can. But even this becomes clear only when one is part of the story. How does it make sense? All of life makes sense through the lens of Scripture? Well, it only becomes clear as you're living in that life, and then all of a sudden you say, wow, this makes sense. I can see it now. I can actually feel that the zip line, that the cable will hold me up. So he continues. He says, in the end... The only answer I have to give to the question is along such lines. I have been called, and here's the answer. I have been called through no merit of my own to carry this message and to tell this story and to give this invitation. It is not my story and it is not my invitation. It has no coercive intent. It is an invitation from the one who loved you and who gave himself up for you. Why am I a Christian? Because I have been called by name through no merit of my own. I have been loved before the foundation of the world, and the Lord has made me his own. I say this, me, for this is me. This is wait me. I say this not with an air of superiority, nor judgmentalism, nor condemnation. I am simply telling you that the Lord Jesus has met me and he has made me his own. And I have heard his voice and I have followed him. And like an ambassador who delivers a message of a king, he has charged me to carry this message and to tell the story and to give this invitation to you. It is not my story and it's not my invitation. And it has no coercive intent, but it is an invitation from the one who loves you and who gave himself up for you. Why do I believe? Because he strapped me to the zip line of himself and I jumped. And maybe you're com- you've been coming to church all your life. And maybe for you, Christianity is a system of life. That you say, you know what, I believe that this is God's world and things work better when I follow God. And so you do this because you think this is just going to make my life go better. And maybe you've been doing this your entire life, but you've never had, you've never had a personal encounter. A, a personal relationship. That can change today. And that can change today through a living relationship with a living and resurrected Savior working through his spirit, and it changes by believing. So that by believing that you would know him, and that by knowing him that you would believe him and have a relationship with him. So who believes? Those who are his sheep. 
Who are his sheep? It is those who believe. Well, how exactly does this happen? That's what Jesus explains next. That's who believes. It's his sheep believe. But, but how exactly do they believe? Verse 27 makes it very clear for us. My sheep, three things. Hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. My sheep hear my voice. That is, they listen to me. My sheep listen to me. They experience me. That is, they know me. And they follow me, is what Jesus says. They are, my sheep listen to me. The word here for they hear my voice, it's a present with continuing action. It means that it's not just something that happened some time ago. If you're here in your day and you're a Christian, that God did when you became a Christian some time ago. I heard God's voice and I became a Christian. It is they, my sheep hear, my sheep are hearing, my sheep are listening to my voice. Sheep, are you listening to the voice of Jesus? Do you hear and are you listening to the voice of Jesus? Imagine, for example, that you're walking along a beach and you discover there is this message in the bottle. And you take out this message of the bottle, and the bottle says, if you take this and you go up to this message and you go to a certain bay and you go to the, the third cave on the left and you go to the back left corner of that cave and you dig, you will find a, a treasure chest there inside of a giant cask. Now, there's a couple different ways that you could respond to that. Is that you could respond to this message by saying, well, isn't this just a fascinating historical artifact? There apparently were people who wrote about things and apparently buried treasure. How interesting is that? And there's all kinds of different analysis that you could do. But another way for you to receive this is to say, this is incredible. This, is a, this piece of paper is a communication from the author to whoever would find it, to me. Like, they have written this so that someone like me, that I would receive this and I would do what it would say and I would receive the benefit of following it, that I would believe that these words are actually true and I would know it because I discovered the treasure chest that has been buried. That you receive the the message in the bottle as an act of communication. Well, God has given us an act of God has given us an act of communication, and it is not a message in the in a bottle, but rather it is the message in the Bible. It is a message in the book that God has given as the author that He has given to you that you would receive it not as an encyclopedia, not with a bunch of factoids, but an act of communication that God is giving to you. And unlike any other text in this world. What God promises through Scripture is that the Word of God is living and active. That the author is living and active. That the Spirit of Jesus attends His Word and meets you through the reading and application of His Word. So yes, when we read Scripture, the Word of God, we want to learn it. We want to gain information and knowledge. But more than that, when we read Scripture, when we come to worship, we come to listen to listen to the voice of God to us. To listen to the voice of the good shepherd speaking to his sheep. Are you listening? Do you approach Scripture expecting to listen? Not just to follow an owner's manual, but to listen to it. For Jesus' sheep, they believe because they listen 
They hear his voice and they listen to it. Second thing that happens is that they experience Jesus. He says, I know them. They know them personally. Jesus knows his sheep personally. He knows them experientially. Let me demystify this for a second. You know, Quincy, like, you know, you have this experience with Jesus. Jesus knows you. What is, you know, what is that like? Does that occur when there's candles in the room and quiet music? Like, like, what is this? Well, relationship 101. Can you know somebody without spending time with them? No. How would you do to, to want to get to know somebody? You spend time with them and you talk to each other. And you listen to them, right? And when Jesus is saying, my sheep hear my voice and, and I know them, they, they experience me, that there is a relationship that occurs with me. How does that happen? Well, it happens through the Word of God. It happens through listening to the Word of God, through prayer, through the Lord's Supper, through worshiping with His people. Um, Next week, we're starting a series on prayer, particularly to, for that we would grow in this aspect of communing with God and communing with God with prayer. But Jesus' sheep listen to him, and they experience him, and then they follow him. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. That's what it means to believe, to listen, to experience, and to follow Jesus. What does it mean to follow him? It means to do what Jesus does, to follow in his footsteps, to imitate Jesus, to live lives that reflect the life of Jesus, that the life of the sheep is not lived in isolation from the flock, but the life of the sheep is lived in the flock as the flock seeks to listen to the good shepherd and to follow him. But the sheep don't just take this information, they actually listen to him, experience him, and they follow Jesus. I'm going to take an aside to, for a couple minutes to address a tragedy in our country from recent weeks. Um, a little over a week ago, there was the shooter in the synagogue out in California. And, you know, there's unfortunately so many mass shootings that they just kind of become commonplace. The reason why I'm dressing this one is because I would say that the shooter who perpetrated this was one of our own. Um, in fact, he was a grew up going to a Presbyterian church, to an Orthodox Presbyterian church, a sister denomination, but one that we have reciprocal relationships with, meaning that um, we recognize each other's ordination. And the shooter was one of the sons of the, one of the elders of the church that he grew up in. And this past week uh, in the Washington Post, there's an article in the Post addressing this, and a quote in the article was responding, a colleague of mine in our presbytery, um, responding to how do, you, how do you react when it's one of your own who has committed such an atrocity. And part of the reason why this is especially highlighted is because the shooter wrote a manifesto that used and distorted all kinds of reformed and covenantal language in theological language such as we would use in our own church and in our own, in our own congregation. So how do we respond to that? Well, first off, let me unequivocally denounce and condemn any act of violence or hatred or racism anywhere, particularly that which would originate within our own midst. Jesus called us to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, and that Christians are to live their lives modeled after Jesus, who laid down his life for his enemies, who loved his enemies, that we're to love 
our neighbors, whether Muslim or Hindu or white nationalists or racists or bigots or, or black nationalists or take your pick, that we are called to love our enemies and to show people and to show people the love of Christ. But something that needs to be clarified in the midst of this is that the way that the narrative of our culture is responding to these situations, particularly this one, is to say, well, see, this guy was just grew up in a, a Reformed church, and so therefore this is just the problem with Reformed theology. This is, this is just the natural outworking of it. This is just another example why religion is bad. It's why religion is bad, and just another example why Christianity is no different than radical Islam. And why religions just lead people to hate and cause division and hate in our world. Now, of course, those that are proposing such things have to conveniently ignore that the greatest atrocities in the history of the world have occurred by state-sponsored secularism, namely communism under Stalin, and then in Germany, let alone what communism occurred in China that puts the Holocaust to, sh- uh, I mean, just a, a fraction of what occurred in the Holocaust um, I'm sorry, what occurred in China was, was orders of magnitude greater than what occurred in the Holocaust. And who was the sponsor of that? It was state-sponsored secularism that did that. And let alone in our own country, that the largest mass shooting of recent years occurred in Las Vegas by someone who, was, um, who claimed no religious affiliation whatsoever. I think the first point to take away is that the seeds of evil relied within all of us and our not, no, community is, no community is immune, immune from that. But the other thing that's happening within the way that the media is responding to this and our politically correct culture is seeking to respond to this is the response to this would be like, well, see, this is Christianity is just the same as radical Islam, but Islam is not the same as radical Islam because Islam is a religion of peace. Now, Western media, when it comes to Muhammad, has been, portrays him in a couple different ways. There are those that portray Muhammad as that, you know, Muhammad was just this, you know, he was just this peace-loving guru who started a cool religion, kind of confused him with Gandhi, and, uh, you know, he was just this cool dude, right? So that's one picture of who he is. The picture of, of Muhammad in Western academics, and I do say Western academics because it's not present in the rest of the world, is that they've developed this a revisionist history, and they say, well, you know, there aren't any credible sources about Muhammad or his life until in the first writings that we have about him were several hundred years afterwards. So all of these things about Muhammad's life, none of them are true, and so there's no credible sources of that. Now, the third group of people are those that take Muhammad's writings seriously, particular in the latter portions of the Quran, which the Quran is structured differently than Scripture. I'd be happy to explain that sometime. In particular, is that the, Quran, the later portions of the Quran are written as revisions of the earlier version. They are revi- written as revisions and replacements of the earlier version of that. And so, they say, and those that take seriously about what the Quran actually says about Muhammad and his life. And so, while there may be some debate about who Muhammad really was and that being up for grabs, what we do know unequivocally and without debate, is that Islam across the globe, and I refer to Islam as a religion, not to Muslims in particular, Islam idolizes Muhammad as a rebel tribal leader who pillaged, who murdered, who raped, and who conquered in the name of Allah. And that's who Islam holds him out to be and wants him to be, in the overwhelming majority of the overwhelming majority of the world. And that point, that's not even debatable. 
I mean, there, there's, no, there's no, counter to, no counter to that. I mean, it is not even debatable. The only people are, that are debating, debating it are westernized modern Muslims who want to break away from that tradition. That's the only people that are doing it. But one of our missionaries in Central Asia in a Muslim country who is a uh, national of that country, born and raised in that country, I was discussing with him one time about... Um, how does he respond, because he's periodically on boards, you know, question, panels in his own country, how does he respond when people say to him, you know, well, sure, it, Muslims have committed a, atrocities in the name of Islam, but so have Christians. What about the Crusades? What about uh, abortion clinic bombings? What about things that Christians have done in violent perpetration in the name of, of their religion? And this is how he responds quite publicly. And this is how he responds to a Muslim audience, with Muslim clerics present. And he responds by stating this, when Muslims blow up people and kill people, are they following in the footsteps and teachings of their founder, Muhammad? And of course they are. They all know that. They're like, well, yeah. I mean, they, they can't argue that they're not, or at least as they espouse them to be in their country and in two-thirds of the world that hold this. And so then he follows the, asks the next question. Okay, even in a Muslim audience, he'll ask this question, and he'll say, okay, when Christians hate and murder in the name of Christianity, are they following in the footsteps and teaching of their founder, Jesus Christ? And even the Muslims know that they're not. And the difference here is that when Christians go bad, and they do, even from our own community, for the seeds of evil are present within each one of us, when Christians go bad, they do so in violation of Jesus' example and teaching. But when there's violence and rape and theft and domination and polygamy and many, many, many more things which characterize Muhammad's life, those things inspire his devoted followers. So what do we do when we hear of a synagogue shooter, one who comes from our own camp and even from our own community, larger community? What do we do? Well, we grieve. We mourn. We mourn with the members of the, and families in those synagogues. We mourn with the Jewish community at large over the atrocity that they've experienced. We, we mourn with them, we grieve against them, and we speak and we stand against any form of bigotry and racism and hatred in our world, and especially that within our own community. We acknowledge that there is evil within every one of us, and we clearly state that this is not what followers of Jesus are called to do and followers of Jesus are called to be. Because those who are his sheep listen to Jesus, and they experience Jesus, and they follow Jesus. And our lives should reflect that. Here's then what Jesus' sheep receive. Those who believe, those who are a sheep. Who are a sheep, those who believe. Who are those who believe, those who listen to Jesus, experience Jesus, and follow Jesus. And here is what they receive. Verse 28 tells us, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. That gives them deep, lasting life, life that begins now. You know, there's sometimes this tendency to think that there is this earthly life, and then we die, then there is eternal life. 
What Scripture says is no, that when you believe in Jesus, you receive eternal life that begins right now, that continues through death, and continues into eternity. And you can begin to experience what Jesus says is an abundant life now by following him and knowing him. But what he also gives is not only eternal life, but eternal life with eternal security. I give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. What does Jesus give to his sheep? One person says he gives them an indefectible security, that that no one can snatch them out of his hand. That if you are his sheep, you are forever safe in Jesus' grip. That no one can snatch you out of his hand, not the marauding wolf, not a wolf in sheep's clothing, not thieves and robbers, not yourself with your successes and your failures and, and regrets. Who can snatch you out of his grip? No one. No, not anyone. How do we respond to that? We say, thank the Lord that my eternal security depends not on my fatiguing, cramping grip on God, but it depends on the strength of his grip upon me. And Jesus makes it clear, I mean, to, to suggest otherwise or to think otherwise, to think that Jesus would let you go, to think that you could fall out of his grip and out of his hold. Look what Jesus says about that in John 6. He says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. To think that Jesus would lose his grip on you means to suggest that Jesus would have failed in his explicit assignment from the Father. And he doubles down. Verse 29, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Who can steal from God? Who has, who has strength to outwit or overpower the sovereign Father? Jesus' point is that there is no force There is no being strong enough to sever the relationship between the true believer and Jesus Christ. No force that can separate the shepherd from the sheep. For as Paul in Scripture makes apparent again and again, for when you believe in Christ, your life is hidden with Christ in God. You are bound to him. And there is nothing that can separate you. He asks rhetorically, what can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, can there be anything that you are experiencing in your life that can separate you from the love of Christ? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, Paul writes, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, 
nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor any force in all of creation, neither heights nor depths, in case he missed it, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That if you are in Christ, if you are his sheep, you are secure in his grip, and he will never let you go. Those who are his sheep believe. Those who, are, those who believe are his sheep. And those who believe listen to Jesus, experience Jesus, and follow Jesus. And in doing so, they receive not only eternal life that begins now, but eternal security, and he will never let you go. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we praise you that your grip is secure. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you and the Father are one and that his grip is secure and there is no one, no thing, no force, no power that can overpower him. And Father, we come before you and we acknowledge that the seeds of evil reside within each one of us and Lord, within each and every community regardless of who they identify with. And so, Father, we pray that you would use us, Lord, that we would hear your voice, that we would listen to you, that we would experience you, and that we would follow you. And that we would follow you, enjoying eternal life and enjoying the eternal security. And that would give us the freedom to follow you into dark places and into hard places. Lord, thank you that you are the good shepherd and that you will never let us go. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.